Well, good morning. I just want to welcome you all here. Delighted to have you here with us this morning, be able to worship together uh, and to hear from the Word of God. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open up uh, to the book of Revelation. We are continuing on in our series here in the book of Revelation, looking at uh, the seven letters to the churches. Well, this past year, I, I passed something of a milestone in my life. I, I began my third decade of life. And uh, so I, I'd like to start off by just telling you a little bit uh, about what it's like to grow older, all right? Can, can I do that? All right, okay, okay. All right, I'm not actually that old, I, I get that. But I have actually begun to notice things have changed, right? When I, when I was a teenager, I, I, I could eat whatever I wanted, and I would feel just fine, right? If I had, you know, McDonald's breakfast, lunch, and dinner, at the end of the day, for whatever reason, I would still be feeling fine. It's one of these things I've noticed that already has begun to change in my life. Actually, the food I eat has an effect on my body. In fact, it was just a, a few years ago, uh, my wife, she was away uh, for a weekend. She was at a women's retreat or something, and so I, I figured, hey, this is a great time. I'm just going to kick back. I'm going to watch a movie. So went out. I grabbed some pop, chips, candy, sat down to watch my movie. And at the end of it, Corinna called me later on that evening, and she said, well, how are you doing? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm actually feeling a little sick. And, and so she asked me, well, well, what have you eaten today? And I said, well okay, I had, you know, I had some pop, I had some chips, I had some candy, and, and in a very sweet, very loving tone, she said, oh, and you're feeling sick now, is that right? Okay, yes, yes, all right, it makes sense, right? It was one of those sad moments where I realized I, I, I couldn't keep on doing the same things that I'd always been doing. My body just didn't tolerate that kind of food any longer, in many ways, that, that is something I think most of us are, are at least aware of, right? We have these sayings like, you know what, um, uh, you are what you eat, right? If you eat good food, you eat healthy food, you're going to end up being healthy, right? And at least in a general terms, that's kind of what we suppose, right? If we eat something good, we're going to end up feeling good. And so we pay attention to that kind of things. And, and really, we, we know it's true in other areas, right? Take, take what you watch, for instance, Right? What you watch has an effect on, on your mental state, all of these kinds of things. In fact, I just read an article this last week about some people who do uh, content filtering for YouTube. Right? So if you upload a video to YouTube, it gets filtered, and there's actually someone who is in charge of looking through all the explicit, all of the graphic videos that try and get posted. And so uh, a lot of these people end up with things like PTSD simply from having to watch this day after day, hour after hour. It, it has an effect. What we watch, what we spend our time looking at, looking at and doing has an effect on who we are. Right? It's true of our diet, it's true of what we watch, it's also true of our spiritual life as well. Right? What we take in on a spiritual level also has an effect on, on us. In fact, uh, it has a very big effect. And really that's what this letter this morning is all about. Jesus is writing to this church in Thyatira because they had been tolerating a lot of this really bad teaching and some of the effects were now beginning to show. And so right off the bat this morning, I kind of want to challenge us and simply say, I think sometimes we are more concerned about what goes into our mouths, the food that we eat, than what we actually let into our eternal soul. 
And so this morning is a little bit of Jesus correcting his church on that. So if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to continue on starting in verse 18. So here are the words of Jesus to the church. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the, children, or all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father." I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, that's as far as we're going to read this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for uh, the, the goals that you set before us. Thank you for uh, the way in which you speak clearly to our lives, to our hearts. Father, I, I pray, would we take seriously what you have to say to us this morning? Would we pay attention to, to what uh, we have allowed, even in our own lives, to begin to tolerate? And, and Father, I pray, would you convict us where we need convicting? Would you encourage us where we need encouraging? And Father, would we steadfastly follow after you until the very end? Father, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are, we are diving into now our, our fourth letter in this series uh, to the church in Thyatira. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, you will have noticed that, that each of these letters is very much tailored uh, not only to the church that Jesus is writing to, but also to the city that it's in. There's a lot of very specific clues that, that Jesus is taking and using in order to communicate his message to these churches, and, and today is, is no exception. Right, as we look into this city of Thyatira, right, we'll notice for the last couple of weeks we've been looking at these cities. There's been Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. These were, these were massive city, cities in the ancient world. They're in sort of modern day Turkey. They were all along the coast and they were all vying for power as the premier city in the entire province. Right? Ephesus had all the trade routes going through it. It was commerce city, right? The, uh, Smyrna had the temple to the Roman emperor. Pergamum had the seat of civil authority. They had all the court systems there. Thyatira had none of these. Thyatira was 
no way that special. In fact, it was mediocre on pretty much every single you know, uh, standard that we might use. It was kind of a smaller town, wasn't as big as the other ones. It was mostly a kind of a blue-collar working town. A lot of people who worked with trades in their... In their uh, uh, yeah, in their trades and all kinds of different things. They were craftsmen, right? They worked on stuff. There was a few trade routes that went through, but mostly it was a stop on the way to somewhere else. And yet Jesus doesn't look at the church that way, right? This wasn't an insignificant group of people on sort of a, a backwards kind of town. In fact, no, God actually was going to make this church known to those around them. And so in a very similar pattern we, we see in this letter, Jesus starts off and he, he commends them for something and then he rebukes them for something and then ends with a promise. And in fact, that's, that's what we see here in this letter as well. And so really this, this letter is all about, he, he commends them, continue on in your love and your service, hold on to the holiness of God and one day you will actually reign with Jesus. That's really what this letter is all looking to unpack. So, so let's just move through it little bit by bit. Verse 18, Jesus begins the letter. It says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Right, the description we get here is one of Jesus, and it's taken pretty much right out of chapter one. If you go back, you'll see when John first sees Jesus, this is how he describes him, eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze who had been refined in a furnace. And it's one that actually probably most people in Thyatira would have recognized right away. They would have understood what was being communicated here. See, burnished bronze was, was bronze that had actually gone through like a kiln. They had heated it up, melted down. They had taken off all the extra junk out of there, right? So that when it actually solidified, it was a solid piece of metal. It was actually much harder than if you just dug it up and, I don't know, slapped it on yourself, right? This was, this was actually real armor that Jesus had. Right? The, the image that we get here is, is not quite as comforting as some of the others. In fact, the image here is of Jesus with eyes like fire, right, whose feet are ready to trod down others, right, who has armor on. In fact, it, it's, it's a picture of, of authority that Jesus is coming to this church with. In fact, that's, that's very much what we see outworked in this letter. Right, Jesus commends them, however, for their, their love and their service. Right? They're, they're doing some things well, and in fact, very well. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Pause there for a moment. That is an amazing thing that Jesus has just said about this church. He says, I know everything you've gone through, and I know the love that you have for me and for one another. In fact, how you're doing now is even better than when you started, right? And, and that's even more impressive when you realize, actually, this church has been around for a while. This isn't a brand new start that, oh, sure, it's all fun and games when it begins. Actually, they've been going for quite some time. If you remember back in Acts chapter 16, Paul is, he is going out on this missionary journey, and he's trying to figure out where exactly he should go. And he, he hears this call that he should be heading into, well, it's called the province of Asia, Turkey. And so he crosses over into the border. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 16. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia 
from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. See, the very first convert that happened in Europe was a woman from this city. She was visiting where Paul had ended up, and so she becomes the first believer. We don't know exactly when the church began, but we can kind of assume it was sometime shortly after that, as she went back and began to share about what God had been doing. And so they've been around for a while, and instead of their faith and their love kind of growing dim, the excitement fading, they've actually been getting stronger and stronger. They've been growing in their love throughout this whole time. Right, just compare that to how Jesus talks about the church in Ephesus. Right, to the church in Ephesus, he has basically the exact same thing, just the opposite. Right? You can look back, uh, Revelation 2, verse 4. Jesus says, but this I have against you, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Right? Thyatira actually has the opposite. They hadn't abandoned their first love, they had actually grown and built upon it. And so if there's anything for us to really be striving after in this passage, surely it is this, that we would actually look like this, that our faith, our love, our Christian walk might be able to say in 10, 20, 30 years from now, I am doing so much better than when I was when I first met Jesus. In fact, when I look back at my life, I'll think to myself, why was I doing so little back then? Right? It's a little bit like if you've ever seen uh, some, some older couple, they've been married, let's say, 50 plus years, and they are still in love as much as they, as they were on the day they first met. Right? You can ask that couple, how do you do it? What is the secret? And the truth is, it doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by accident. It's not that they just simply have never had a problem in their relationship. No, they certainly have. They have worked on it day after day. Same thing with our Christian life. It's not as if this is the kind of thing that simply happens by accident, that we stumble into simply growing in our faith and our love for Jesus. No, it's something we actually need to work on. Something that we give effort to and we say, how can I actually be pursuing God more and more each and every day that this might be the testimony about my life? See, one of the things I love about these letters is just the clarity that Jesus gives us. Right? The clear goal that he sets before the church, might this be your aim, that each and every day you would actually grow in your love for God so that at the end of the day, it might not be that our best days are behind us, but always, always in front of us, that we would be continually growing, that the years would not diminish our faith. But just as clearly as Jesus puts this goal and as he commends the church for their good works, is just as clearly as he warns them about what he has to say as well. Right? Jesus has something against this church and he is going to rebuke them for, for missing some things. And I'm gonna say that, that ultimately what, what Jesus is calling them to do is to turn to holiness. Now I'll unpack that a little bit, but look with me at verse 20. Verse 20 says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Right, here's what Jesus has against this church. They had been tolerating this woman who had been leading people away from the church to actually worship other gods, had to worship these idols. Right, if, 
If Ephesus is the opposite in terms of what they were missing, Thyatira is the opposite by what they are rebuked for, right? Ephesus is told, you've done well, you've held to your doctrine, but you've lost your love. Thyatira is the opposite. You've held your love, but you've lost your doctrine, right? They have begun to tolerate all manner of false teaching. Now, now I think we get ourselves a little bit tripped up here. Right, that, that word tolerate is used in a lot of different ways, and sometimes we're a little bit confused, what exactly is Jesus saying? Right, is it just that, you know what, they were tolerant, they, they treated people kindly, they spoke with respect, you know, is that really what Jesus is upset about? That they tolerated in terms of saying, hey, you know what, we, we should speak kindly to one another. Well, I, I don't really think that's what's going on. I don't think Jesus is upset that, that you treated someone well, I think what he's saying uh, that with this toleration is that they had let this woman teach something false without correcting it. There was never a challenge that was brought up. They simply let it go and said nothing. It was a very passive kind of response. They had simply allowed her to continue on and had not corrected this. And Jesus says this woman's name is Jezebel. Now, now, I don't think that's her actual literal name. No, I think actually he's here referring to Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament, right? If you remember the stories of what she had all done, she, she first uh, pops up in 1 Kings chapter 16. We read this. It says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He is the king of Israel as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam and the son, uh, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Jezebel was one of the most wicked queens that the nation of Israel ever had. And as bad as Ahab was, he was actually nothing compared to her. Most people were far more frightened of Jezebel because she was the one who was conniving behind the scenes. She was underhanded and she was moving the people of Israel to actually serve these idols and not the living God. Right? I've never seen Game of Thrones, but I imagine she would fit in quite well. Right? She was quite a ruthless person. She had people executed all the time. And in fact, at one point, she, uh, her husband Ahab looks over and sees a garden and thinks, oh, that, that's a really nice piece of land. I'd love to own that. And what Jezebel does is she convinces a whole plot of a town of people to stone this man outside the gates all so that her husband can have a nicer garden. Right? She was a ruthless woman, and she led the people of Israel away from God. In fact, this is what Jesus is saying. That's what this woman is doing in your church. She is leading people to worship idols and engage in all manner of sexual immorality. So we've looked at this a couple times in our series. One of the big problems, one of the big challenges that Christians had at this point in time is especially when they were craftsmen. They would be part of what's called a guild, right? You can kind of think of like a union, right? They had a union job, and so the union meetings all happened in temples. And so there was one particular idol for each uh, union that would meet, and they would gather there, they would worship the idol, and a lot of that included cult prostitution. And so this woman Jezebel had begun to convince the church that, you know what, it's actually not a big deal if you start to engage in these practices, 
It's just for your job, right? We, we don't know exactly how or what she was teaching, but you can imagine she would simply say, look, idols aren't real. There aren't actually gods behind there, so it doesn't really matter what you do. It doesn't really matter if you actually worship there. It's just part of your job, so just do it and get out and don't even worry about it. Well, in fact, Jesus has something to say, right? She, she is taking this sneaky, underhanded way to convince people to worship idols instead of God, and so Jesus says, do not tolerate her. She has led the people into sin. Don't let her speak. Don't let her seduce people into following her. In fact, when Jesus was on earth and doing his own ministry, if you think about it, who were his major opponents? It was the Pharisees, the people who said, I get to speak for God and here's what you should be doing. Right? That's who Jesus butted heads with the most. It was the people who wore this cloak of a friend and would lead others astray. And so now Jesus will have absolutely none of this kind of teaching in his church. But I want to ask the question, and it might be a bit of an odd question, but I want to ask the question, why? Why is it that Jesus cares so much about this? Why is he rebuking the church? Because he's done this before. If you remember last week, Jesus has almost the exact same rebuke for the church there. They had been tolerating false teachers as well. So, so why is it a big deal? Is it just that, that Jesus is a bit of a stickler for the rules? Right? He kinda, he's, a, he's a details kind of guy. And so, you know what? He just kind of really wants to make sure that, that nothing outside of this is happening. What, what exactly is the motivation? Why should the church care? Well, I, I think as we look at this passage and the rest of the Bible, I think our answer comes from the character of God himself. See, throughout the Bible, God is described in a lot of different ways. He is loving, he is kind, he is merciful, he's gracious, he's forgiving, he's just, he is righteous. But by far, the most common way that God is described is holy. He is described as Holy. In fact, you can just look ahead in uh, Revelation to chapter 4, and you'll see the angels all around the throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? And, and as much as this is the most common way God is defined, it's often hard to figure out how exactly do we talk about holiness? What exactly is it, right? Because it's used in a number of different ways, in fact, if you go all the way back to the book of Leviticus, I, I know it's everyone's favorite book to read through Leviticus, but, but Leviticus actually has a lot to say about holiness. And it will talk about all of the things that you find in the temple and it will call them holy, right? The, the holy cups and instruments and all the different things. And, and what it's meaning there is that it's set apart for God's service, right? Most of you probably grew up with parents who had holy dishes, Right, do you ever have those dish sets that no one was allowed to use? They were only for guests and only for really special guests, and they were kept in a closet or in a box or something like that. They were set apart. Right? That, that's kind of what holiness looks like. It is being set apart for God's service. But as you continue to read through, actually, there's, there's more dimensions that come in. In fact, to be holy, it, it comes with a, a moral purity. It's set apart now, not just for God, but it's set apart from sin. 
In fact, it's separate from all these things. And so we see here, here God is perfect, he's pure, he is without sin, he does not have anything to do with it. In fact, as we continue on, we realize God himself is the definition of holiness. Leviticus chapter 20 says this. It says, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, literally who makes you holy. See, God here wants us to connect these two things together. It is his character, his perfection, who he is, is connected with why he calls us to do what he does. It's so that we might actually be a reflection of him. It's not just a random set of rules that God has decided, here, I want you to do this for no reason. It's so that we might be a reflection of him. In fact, that's not just an Old Testament call, that's a New Testament one as well. First Peter chapter 1 says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, we as Christians are actually called to live this out. We're to call, we are called to live in the very holiness that the God who saved us is. Right? The reason that Jesus calls the church in Thyatira out like this isn't because he just wants to be a stickler for the rules. It's because his church is meant, is intended to be a reflection of his character. In fact, it is supposed to represent his holiness. And as we read through the Bible, we realize God cares deeply about how his name is proclaimed, about his glory, about how he is seen. And so why should we actually care about this? Why should the church care? It's because we actually need to care about the glory of Jesus, that we should care about the name of our Savior. See, sometimes I think we're actually far more concerned about a whole host of other things. We're far more concerned about how people speak about our sports team than we are about how people speak about Jesus, right? I, I think we generally, we want to protect that which we love, right? We protect the reputation of people that we love. I had a former pastor, he had a kind of a funny saying. He said, if you want to insult me, you want to attack me, that's fine, it's water off a duck's back. If you attack my wife, duck. All right? I like that. I don't think he ever actually hit someone, just to be clear, right? But we actually protect what we love. We, we naturally want to, uh, yeah, protect that, the things that we love. So do we care about the name of Jesus like that? Are we fine letting his holiness be dragged through the mud? See, that's what Jesus is actually rebuking them for. He said, you've stopped caring about my own reputation and my name. And so now Jesus, with eyes of fire, is going to do something about it. Look back at verse 21. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, now just notice that first part for a second. See, here's what I find so interesting. Because if Jesus was just a stickler for the rules, why bother giving her time to repent? There's no need for that. 
But this isn't just Jesus being a stickler for the rules. This is a demonstration of his character, of his holiness, of who he is. And so God, as he is, is merciful and gracious. And so he even gives this woman time to repent, to turn away from her sins and turn to him. It's the exact same thing that God does with us. Just as he is patient with this woman, he is patient with us when we do wrong. See, we violate God's holiness all the time. We don't represent him well. We sin against him, and yet God doesn't bring down lightning strikes every time we do. Why? It's because he wants to give us a chance to repent, to come to Jesus and find forgiveness. See, the cross that Jesus went to, that he died on, was at the same time the most loving, the most gracious, the most forgiving act, and at the same time is upholding the standard of his holiness for all to see. See, there's a reason that that God couldn't just simply forgive, just kind of sweep everything under the rug. No, actually, God cares about his holiness. He cares about his glory. He actually cares about sin. And so, what happens is God actually becomes a man. He comes to earth and he dies on that cross because only he could actually take the fullness of the penalty of what we have done. See, our sins were not a minor thing for God to sweep under the rug. In fact, they were immense. It was an incredible offense against God, his holiness and his character, and so only Jesus himself could atone for it. It's the forgiveness and the holiness of God coming together in one act so that anyone who would trust in him would be saved. See, that is how we are saved. When we place our trust in what Jesus has done, not in what we are able to do, but in what he has done. It's the forgiveness that God gives to us, that he offers to us, and it's the same thing that he offered to this woman, Jezebel but she doesn't repent. She wants nothing to do with it, and so Jesus now begins to take action. Look back at verse 22. It says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. God is going to bring judgment against her and against actually all who are following her teachings. I don't think those are her literal children. I think he's talking about those who've been following her. And sometimes we read verses like this and it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We think, well, that's, that's kind of Old Testament God, isn't it? That's Old Testament. This is New Testament. And yet, no, no, God is still holy. God still cares about his holiness And even as he offers out this forgiveness and grace, it is not at the expense of his character. In fact, verse 23 continues. It says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Right, Jesus declares he is the one who has the authority to judge us. He is the one who doesn't only see the outward works, but actually the inward heart and mind. He knows us And so he is the one who actually has the authority, and God says, in fact, I will make her into an example. Everyone is going to know what has happened here. They will know, in fact, the authority of Jesus. Here's the question. 
what do we do with all this? What exactly do we do with all of this? As we talk about the, the holiness of God and judgment and forgiveness and, and we're wrestling through, what exactly does this mean for, for me, for my life? Right? Maybe you're sitting here and thinking, I'm just lost. I don't know what to do. Well, well, let me just kind of make it a little bit more simply. Let's simply ask the question, do we care about the reputation of God? Do we care about the holiness of God in our lives? Or maybe we could actually flip the question the other way around. How much sin do we tolerate? How much sin do we tolerate in our own lives? Right? Are there sins that kind of sit in the background? They've sit, sat there for quite some time, and actually, if we're honest, we're quite comfortable with them being there. We're not upset that there are these outbursts of anger. We're not upset that there are these you know, impulses of lust and all of these other things. We don't actually get that upset when, when curses and all manner of slander comes out of our mouths. Right? We lie, but we say, well, it's just part of the job. Right? Maybe I didn't quite work that long, but I added a few extra minutes. Just a few extra overtime hours isn't going to make a big difference. Just a few extra charges on the account won't really matter. I'm not extorting anyone. It's just a little thing. How much sin do we tolerate in our lives? How much do we let sin remain unchecked, unchallenged in our actions? How much do we actually care about representing God's holiness? Because the truth is, God cares deeply about it. I think if we're honest, sometimes we don't want to get rid of all sin. We don't want to. It sounds more fun if there's just a little bit. Just a little bit of sin, just a little bit of infidelity, just a little bit of lying, just a little bit of cursing, just a little bit of gossip won't hurt anyone. We tolerate all kinds of sin because we wrongly assume Jesus wouldn't really care. Jesus is fine with it. Actually, Jesus cares a whole lot. Jesus isn't looking for us to tolerate a little bit of sin in our lives. He's looking for a full, pure, clear picture of who he is, his holiness and his character. And so how do we put this into practice? Why don't we start by simply repenting? Repenting of the sin that we have let lie dormant, that we haven't actually bothered to fight or to kill, that we've just simply said, it's okay if this lives in my life. Jesus gave this woman time to repent. And maybe the, the warning we need to hear sometimes is that actually the time ends. And we should probably tremble at that thought. But I do have to say, if you're hearing me this morning, that time is not yet today. If you're here today, would you repent? Turn away from your sins and actually trust in what Jesus has done, that he has done all of it for us. There's nothing more that we can add, that we are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. Look back at verse 24. Jesus says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. 
Jesus says to them, I'm not laying on an extra burden. I'm not looking for you to do some sort of penance to, to make up for all of this. I'm not looking for some act of, of you know, contrition. I'm looking for your faith and continuing on in that, continuing to pursue after holiness. Hold fast, turn back to the holiness of God because Jesus himself is the one who has authority over all things. See, the last few verses in our passage are a promise. It's a promise for the church in Thyatira, but it's really a promise for everyone who follows God to the end. It's the promise of the authority of Jesus. Look at verse 26 with me. It says, the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father and will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, the promise is that for those who conquer, hold fast to Jesus until the very end, that we will be given authority with Jesus to rule over the nations. It's the very authority that the Father will hand to Jesus we get to participate in. Right? The language here is lifted right out of Psalm chapter 2. It's one of these psalms that's talking about the coming Messiah, about what Jesus is going to do. It says this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Right? Jesus is being given authority over all of the nations on account of what he has done. And here the promise is that for the believer, we will share in that reigning authority. In fact, we will be given Jesus himself. Verse 28 says, I will give you the morning star. I think most likely that's a reference to the end of the book. Revelation 22 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The promise for the church is that we will be given Jesus himself and that we will reign with him. In fact, that is what we are promised. But I'm going to ask again the question, how does this help? Right? We, we've been looking at these letters and we've noticed how, how very tightly knit all of them are together, that the promise is related to what Jesus is calling them to do. So, so how is this promise actually related to what Jesus has just called the church to do? Is this just a random promise Jesus threw in at the end to kind of you know, cap off the letter? I don't think so. But here's what I think is going on. Thyatira is this nowhere city. It's not big, it's not that important. It's kind of just on the way to somewhere else. And here is a group of people who are being pushed out of even a mediocre city. They are the outcasts of the ignored. And to them, Jesus now comes. And they are feeling that pressure to try and conform, to try and fit in with their society so that maybe, maybe they could actually have some kind of status among them. And you can imagine someone praying, Jesus, I, I'm just constantly being pushed out of my job. 
I'm constantly getting the, the worst roles, the worst work, because no one wants to actually talk with me. I'm getting ripped off all the time. I don't have the ability to even change this. I, I feel like if I just, 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 just loosened it up just a little bit, maybe everything would go better. And Jesus responds to this church. He says, don't worry about what's happening now. Don't, don't you realize what is coming up? Don't you realize what is going to happen in just a little while? Sure, for now you're pushed out onto the margins, but one day you will rule with me. You might be the outcast now, but you will not be in eternity. In fact, you shall sit on the royal throne with the king. In fact, you will not be pushed to the margins. No, no, you will rule over nations. Do not worry about now, about being lowly now, because you will be honored in eternity. In fact, this is what Jesus promises his disciples. Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The lowly inherit the earth. It's the persecuted that will have the kingdom. And so Jesus promises his church, do not feel that pressure now. Don't worry about where you might end up here and now and what your job might look like because one day there is a future waiting for you that is far more glorious than anything these people have to offer here and now. Do not seek acceptance with your colleagues right now. In fact, seek it in eternity with Jesus. That is where we are to stake our claim. The future is in God's hands, so pursue after holiness now. And I know in many ways that, that's one of the hardest things to hear, isn't it? To, to, to delay that gratification, to say, hold on, take the harder road now, because in the end, it will be worth it, and yet, that is the call of Jesus to all of us. Yeah, it, it is harder sometimes now. There are trials to go through. There are things that we even have to try and work against so that we hold on to the holiness. But, but hear me, this isn't about simply following a different rule. It's actually following a savior. It's following after the one who has walked before us, who has done what we could not do. It's following his example. It's saying it's worth my entire life to give to Jesus that I might gain life with him. It's worth me giving up everything now. So church, would you continue on in your love and service for one another, always growing more and more in love with him. Let our latter works be in holiness be far greater than our first. Let us turn our attention to the holiness of the God who saves. May our lives represent him well. May he be the first and the only love that drives everything we do so that we are looking forward to that day when we shall reign with Christ forever. Let that be our aim. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, when we could not save ourselves, you have saved us. 
Lord, when we were unable to actually work, that we were, that we were impure, Father, you made us pure. That when we were sinners, you saved us by your grace. That when we were outcast, Father, you brought us in to your family. You gave us a hope and a future. Lord, I pray, might we represent you well. Might we long to see your image being put on display in our lives. Lord, let us not grow tired of the work that you call us to, but with joyful hearts put on display the glory of our Savior, that your name might be known in all the earth. Father, I pray, might that be our testimony. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.